Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Just a quick editorial note before we kick this one off. This episode with Frank went a little long, so we're going to break it up into two parts. You're going to be listening to the first part, and then next week we will release the second part. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have back for round two, Frank Dale, who's the founder of Costello, which big news fairly recently, a couple months ago, was acquired by Salesloft. Frank, welcome back. Hey, good to be back here. All right. So, you know, we did this a year ago, just about a year ago last last month, I think. Was it last November we did this? It was. And if you have not listened to that first podcast, you should. And we just recently did a rebroadcast of it in preparation for this conversation. Uh, So I wanted to get that back into your stream. So go back like three or four episodes, find that first one if you didn't listen to it and listen to it because it's a, that'll provide you some context for Costello and and what they do and, and actually Frank's beautiful mind around product, which is one of the things I think I can learn a lot from him on. He talks a lot in that about how they approach that, which uh, clearly uh, has uh, turned out well. So so I, I guess first, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, life at SalesLoft now and what you and the team are doing and, and what that looks like? So it, it's been great. We've been there two months at this point. So the deal closed October 31st and it's gone, it's gone smoothly. My big takeaway so far is the cultures are a strong fit. I mean, typically in these acquisitions, they break down because those things don't fit. But at this point, we're all mission aligned, values aligned, the people like each other, we get along. So it's made it really smooth. And and as a result, we're moving really quickly. So they were the, I think, seventh fastest growing tech company in America, according to Deloitte last year. So they're in a hyper growth stage. And we have been injected into that system at 100 miles an hour. So we're, we're moving quickly to kind of further integrate what we do as we collectively broaden what the category of sales engagement can bring to the table for sales teams today. Well, I guess first, like an explicit congratulations, and we need to do a shout out to uh, Connor Love because we stole his uh, bottle of IW Harper 18-year bourbon. Uh, So cheers. Cheers. Congrats, man. And thank you, Connor. We owe you a drink, Connor. Yes. So that's awesome. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this. Thank you for being so generous with your time. So I'm going to get to a bunch of questions. Let's start with why, uh, so that, you know, you added sales enablement, but talk a little bit about why this was a good fit. Not Maybe not just for sales off, but also f- for you and the team. Talk a little bit about the why on both sides. It's a good question. And as an entrepreneur, it is one of the single biggest decisions you're ever going to make. There's no question. And when we looked at it, so when my co-founder and I evaluated it, there were a couple things that kind of ran through our minds. One, what is the long-term potential of sales loft? Because you have to evaluate that if you're going to join another entity. And when we looked at that, the answer is really strong. Like we had gotten to know the founders of that business. We had been customers of sales loft for almost the life of our business, which was a little over two years. They'd been our customer for at the time of acquisition, a little over 19 months. So we got to know Kyle and Rob, the founders there, and we just have a ton of respect for them. When you look at their business, they are arguably winning one of the next most important software categories, and they help create it. 
So if you look at the outcome of that business, whether we were a part of it or not, SalesLoft was heading to an awesome place. So you, you have to check that box. And the reason you have to check that box is when I look at the people that I am responsible for, how is this decision going to impact them? So in our case, we had to think about our team first. So for my team, is this a good thing for them or a bad thing for them? And when you look at sales off, the answer is it's a really good thing for them because it's a hyper growth company. And in a hyper growth company, it's going to create more opportunities for them. We invested a lot in training and development of our own people and probably far more than most companies at our stage. But at a place like SalesLoft, they have a chief people officer. They have an awesome people team. They invest in training programs, not just when people are onboarded, but in an ongoing basis. So if you look at those things for our employees, arguably, this is a, a good opportunity for them, a great place for them to build the next step of their career. And when they choose to transition out of there, if they ever choose to do that, they're going to be better off because they've been there just like we would hope that they were better off because they were with us. So that's that's kind of community one that I'm responsible for. So the next community is, what about my customers? Well, the reality is it's great for them because we sell to the same people that SalesLoft does. We serve our customers exceptionally well. That is the focus. It was the focus for our business and continues to be the focus for our business. It's also, I would argue, why we got acquired. SalesLoft's has five values. One of the first ones is customer first, right? Customer first in everything they do. So we were values aligned there. Mm -hmm. We were one of their customers. We experienced it ourselves and they experienced it from us to them. So I knew it was going to be good for my customers and they were going to treat them really, really well. Quick aside, did you know you're the only guest of this podcast where when we stopped recording, we licensed your software? No. You're You're the only one where it was like, okay, Turn off the mics. How do we use this? Like, we, we have to use this. Uh, well, first, thank you. And second, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reason why I share that is because I, I, can, I can say it was stunning. And I think Daniel would agree with this. It was stunning the amount of time your team spent with us as like a one seat user out of the, you know, like out of the sea of users you must have, right? Like out of, out of all the companies you could spend that time with that you would, that you would choose to spend it with such uh, what must have been your smallest account could not be strategic in any way, like is, is super reflective of that culture, right? And what that must mean internally that, that it's just part of the process. It's what we do. It's, you know, we're going to, we're going to spend that time. So anyway, kudos to that. And that and to hear that that's reflected uh, at sales loft is awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And, and we'll loop back to that because, um, What you just described, I would argue, is how you build a great product, right? It's how you build a business that customers love because the product experience is great. And then you want to have people that love the customer. And if those two things come together, they're going to renew. They're going to be really happy and they're going to refer other people to you. So that's it it is an advantage. And I think you'd be surprised at how often people don't lean in like that. Awesome. All right. Sorry. Didn't mean to keep going with the why Uh, you were on values. Customer first. Exactly. So. Yeah. So we've talked about my employees. So it was kind of like getting your kid into a good college. It it was a good opportunity for them. Uh, We've talked about my customers. We were values aligned on the right way to treat customers and the focus on the customers. So I knew that if we did this, my customers would be taken care of and we'd have more resources to serve them. Um, So I knew that that was going to be a good outcome for them. And then third is a good outcome for my investors because I'm responsible to them. And then you know, as I mentioned at the, the top of the podcast, SalesLoft was like the seventh fastest growing tech company in America, according to Deloitte. It's growing 
just as fast, if not faster this year than they were in that year. Yeah. And it looks like they will continue to grow at that rate. So it's, obvi- it's obviously a great outcome for them because if you invest um, at the stage that we were, which was a seed stage startup, you probably got another eight years, you know, three, four, maybe like on the short run before you're going to see yeah. a return on the capital. So if you're going to do sales lock, They've raised, you know, over, I want to say $150 million right now. They're on the path to an IPO within the next three or so years. There's no question that one, if we do this deal, it's going to be a good deal for you. And you'll probably get capital returned a little bit quicker than if you did so with us. I, I know I'm not allowed to ask deal term questions. Can I can I ask like deal structure questions? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, what I, w- I would tell you was uh, it was a mix of equity and cash. Perfect. That's what. I, that's actually what I wanted to know. So I was thinking about for your investors, is that like, is it, did, are they just cashed out and they're done or do they get a little bit of that right along? So that's awesome. Yeah, they did. And that, and that was important to me too, right? Like I, because I'm effectively, I'm taking this thing that, you know, I mean, you've created a business before, you're still doing it, right? You still help people do it with developer town. I'm taking something that I have conceived of and I've labored with my co-founder to build and our team to build. And then I'm deciding, am I going to continue to do this myself or am I going to entrust this thing that I've created and not just entrust it, but entrust some of the equity in this thing that I created to another team? And do I believe in that team? And so, you know, in our case, the answer was yes. So when I looked at the people I'm responsible for, it made it a lot easier to say, okay, then how do I feel about this? Because if I'm taking care of my employees, I'm taking care of my customers, and I'm taking care of my investors, then it's okay for me to now ask, how do I feel about it? How does my co-founder feel about it? And when we stepped back and we looked at it, it was kind of pretty easy in a way. There's no question that we could have built a really large and successful business on our own. We had extremely happy customers. We were in a really big market. But on the other side of the table, we had a team we loved who shared our values, who had already built an amazing company, and we're continuing to build an amazing company. And if we're paired up with that business, the things that we could do together would take an already great business at SalesLoft and make it even better. And in our case, we would go overnight from having, let's say, 60 customers to, you know, SalesLoft's got something like 2,300 customers, and that's growing by the day. And if you look at the the businesses they've won this year alone, uh, you know, they've signed Google this year. They've picked up businesses like IBM this year. You know, Looker is LA. I, I just, I was flying through the airport the other day and started to ramble here. I was coming back from Atlanta. I had to go through O'Hare and it was kind of fun to see like the billboards for all of the companies in the airport. I'm like, man, almost every one of these customers is a sales loft customer and they're going to get to use my product. This is pretty amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm now I'm going to jump around a little bit on my list of questions, but that that feels like a good segue. How long will it be until that happens? So, how long before Google is also plugged in and using Costello? Is that like an immediate thing? You're it's already packaged in the default product day one, or are you working on that now? Yeah, we're working on it now. So we we have what I call a light integration prior to this. Um, and if it's helpful, we can wheel back in a few minutes because to some degree, the pattern that we ran at Compendium, which got that business acquired, ended up being the pattern that got this business acquired too. So we can talk about that. We're, de- no, we're definitely talking about that now. I'll write it down. As far as the intermediate plans here, yeah, the, the goal is February 1. We are 
completely native in the product. Right now, you can already run Costello inside of Sales Loft, but we're going to start to kind of integrate that further. Uh, and then the sales team at Sales Loft, which is the best that I've ever seen, uh, will then go to market with that to both new and existing customers as an additional option for what we do. Awesome. And then how many acquisitions has Sales Loft done? Do you know that? And, and what, or what's the frequency of that? Is like this happening every day for them or is this a one-off? What does that look like? It, it's still pretty new. Yeah. So we're the, we're the second one. They bought uh, a conversation. Yeah. Thank you. They bought a conversation intelligence platform last year. So um, if you're not familiar with that space and you're listening to it right now, conversation intelligence is essentially taking sales calls. So they're going to plug into like Zoom or Blue Jeans or, you know, go to meeting kind of any of those platforms. They will take the audio from that, turn that into text. So they're going to use natural language process. Um, prospect. Oh my gosh. Processing. Okay. Thank you. Good. Processing. I got you. And then, you know, they're going to analyze that. So they'll pull out obviously keywords. When did the buyer talk about budget? Um, if you are a sales leader or you are a, a seller, you can go in, you can listen to yourself again, you can break it down, you can compare how you uh, perform in those moments to your peers. You can also take clips from that call and send it to the buyer. If the buyer is like, hey, can you show me this part of the call again where we discussed? The proposal or we walked through this section of the demo i want to share it with my team so it's a, it's an amazing product they brought a company last year that was called note ninja uh, it's now just called sales off conversation intelligence and that was the first acquisition so we're the, we're the second nice awesome what's the biggest contract so we're gonna for people listening to might be upset that we're not talking about the process yet we'll get there but real quick between the two companies what's been the biggest contrast so far when you look at kind of where you were. So 12, 12 employees, right? At the time of acquisition. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, to a 400 plus employee organization. What, what's been the biggest kind of whether jarring, interesting other, like what are, when you contrast kind of life now versus life then, what's that look like? Yeah. Good question. So, so here, there are two things. One, and this is operational and it will be obvious. I think once I say it, when you get, to the size that they're at. And I want to say they had maybe 440 or 450 employees when we joined and they've hired at least, I think, 20 or 30 in the two months since I've been there. So they're, they're at that kind of hyper growth moment, the inflection point. The communication has to be even more intentional. Like when you are 12 people in a room, you can stand up, you can do kind of a, a meeting with everybody pretty quickly. And it's fairly easy to make sure everyone's on the same page. I mean, you know, fairly easy is in quotes, but it's much easier for sales loft. You have to be a lot more intentional and there are, you know, it's, it's a, it's a company. It's like a big company. We have not just marketing, we have product marketing, we have demand gen, we have brand, we have events. So there are just, there are a lot of departments that you have to communicate with and you have to make sure that your teammates know what's going on. Um, So in credit to them, they invested in, project management office is certainly over a year ago. And, and that's made a big difference. So they are an execution machine. So the, the biggest difference really is just making sure that you're more intentional, arguably internally about the way that you communicate. The thing that is nice is what they've not lost that you'll have at the early stage is people make stuff happen. Like it moves quickly. Like we, we are still moving arguably at startup speed. It's intentional, like they manage the risks. So it's not kind of 
cowboy stuff or slapstick in any way, but they move like things happen quickly. And I have a ton of respect for them because most companies at their size don't execute at that speed. And there's a reason they're growing that fast. And that that's part of it. With your extensive two months experience, if you had to armchair quarterback, what's behind that? What is it? Like what, what are, whether that's values, training processes, like what, what are some of the things that you've seen that seem to be indicators of how they're keeping that entrepreneurial pace at the size that they're at? A couple of things. So values are certainly part of it. So they are the most intentional company. I, like I've in the short amount of time I've been there, right. And in my first job out of school, I taught values-based leadership for a year because they, they would allow me to travel the country. So I, I clearly believe in that. We had core values at Costello. This company is the most intentional company I've seen about core values, period. And, and I say that with respect. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. They reference them all the time. They take it seriously. One of the core values is bias to action. Uh, they live it, right? Bias to action, not a value is focused on results. They live it. So it is part of the culture. It is a scaling mechanism. I mean, if you think about yeah. values, values are a scaling mechanism. They're a way to ensure that we have people that are going to make decisions in a way that makes sense for the company without you having to necessarily be in all of the decisions. So they're very intentional about that. And I think that in and of itself helps. I think the other thing that helps is the, again, it goes back to the founders and then people that they've recruited. They're exceptionally intentional about talent, making sure that they get really, really high quality people that also match their value system that want to execute in their way. And then want to get things done. And then they backstop that with a strong organizational structure. And then where it makes sense, as I mentioned, they brought in a project management office. I have been fortunate to be part of a couple of different companies that have gotten acquired. This is the first time I've been in a company of this size. And that's one of the things that I'm interested in learning um, is, is kind of how to execute at this kind of scale. Yeah. And I... Would have told you, given my startup experience, I've been like, oh, project management, this sounds horrible. That's a great team. Like, <laughs> right? Like most, you know, startup founders, I believe in process, as you know, right? I'm methodical, yeah, yeah. but I want to go quickly. I think in my prior experience, we would have equated that unfairly with slow and bureaucratic. Right. Um, in, at least in the way that the sales loft team runs it. So they, uh, they have a gentleman, his name is Nate Remus, he's the, VP for operations, uh, the project management office rolls into him. Their co-founder, Rob Foreman, I think was one of the big people kind of pushing for that. It, it makes stuff happen there. It makes stuff happen there because you have people that will get assigned from that office to projects and they kind of make sure the trains run on time. And generally people appreciate that, right? They help us manage risks, identify risks, uh, stick to timelines. And as a result, people are organized communication seems to flow where it's supposed to go. I mean, it's, it's like any company, we're not going to be perfect, but I, it, it is something that in a past life I would have veered away from. And now certainly you don't want to have it at 12 people. That doesn't make sense, but right. I completely understand why they did it. And now I couldn't imagine as you're getting anywhere near their scale, not having something like that in place. Interesting. All right, let's get into the transaction. So first, maybe you tell me where the best place to start is, because now I have two questions. You, you, you planted one of them. So which is, uh, you'd mentioned the pattern you saw at Compendium, which is the same pattern you've seen at Costello. That could be entry point number one. 
my original question was going to be, why don't you walk through the timeline of kind of the process in terms of when it, when did you realize there might be a deal here and, and then walk us forward from that timeline? Which, which one's a better place to start? Let's go in the order you asked. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk first about the compendium pattern and then because that led to me betting on sales loft and, early. And just super, super quick, the 30-second version of what is compendium, what was that acquisition, just just really, really quick. Yeah, thanks. So used to be the uh, CEO of that business, didn't start it, was brought in by the co-founders uh, initially to run ops, and then they made me the CEO there. It was founded by uh, an amazing entrepreneur by the name of Chris Baggett. Um, with Ali Sales, who was also an amazing entrepreneur, and they both continue to be fantastic entrepreneurs. Uh, so that business... Some good press there too recently. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that business started life as a corporate blogging platform. Short story is we kind of pivoted into content marketing. And then the pattern that is worth repeating there because it led to... It's part of the reason we ended up getting acquired here. I mean, we still had to build a great product and obviously serve the customer as well. In that business, at one point, my VP of success there was a guy named Clayton Stops, who I was I was fortunate to get to come be our VP of success at Costello as well. I know him. He's wonderful. Yeah, you've met him and he's probably interviewed you about our product. He's the guy who reaches out to us like clockwork and makes sure we always feel loved. Exactly. He's amazing. At that business, as we were starting to get the, the churn numbers under control because we had a churn problem for a bit. One of the things I asked him to do, I said, hey, can you take your team? And we only had, let's say, 300 customers at the time. Call all of the customers. And I want to know the answers to two questions. One, and as I mentioned, Compendium did content marketing. So ask the marketer that we work with, what other marketing platforms does that does their company use? And then two, for the person that's our admin at the customer, what else are they personally responsible for? Because the hypothesis was, if I can not only know what their other kind of ecosystem of partners looks like, but I integrate with the ones that my owner uses consistently, if there's a yeah. pattern there, we become really, really sticky at the customer and we drive more value for the customer. So in Costello world, if that is everybody uses, 90% of our customers use Salesforce, then we better integrate with Salesforce versus HubSpot. Or whatever. That's exactly right. So in that business, uh, three things um, came back pretty quickly. B2C customers were mostly using Exact Target. That was really easy. Chris had co-founded that company. We went and integrated with them. We automatically had a list of people to upsell that integration to because they told us. So that was great. On the B2B side, we didn't know that we had a bunch of customers using marketing automation. We kind of thought we knew, but we really didn't know to the to the degree that they were. And it turned out most of them were using the two companies that were kind of winning that space at the time, Marketo and Eloqua. So we now had a list of who was using said solutions. We built some integrations, started to upsell. What we learned from that experience though is culture matters, which you know I was probably 32 at the time, maybe 33. Can't remember exactly. It was my early 30s. So you're still a little naive. Uh, and I didn't appreciate that as much as I would uh, I do today. The partnership with one of those companies was kind of a disaster because our cultures didn't fit and other people in the space had problems with them. How did they not fit? Uh, we are we were first we were kind of Midwestern, so we were super customer oriented. We were much more biased to let's do the right thing for everybody. We were not completely self-oriented. It had to be a win for the customer, it had to be a win for the partner and a win for us. 
that particular um, marketing automation platform, it had to be a win for them and them only, right? Uh, and that was just not a good fit for us. On the other hand, the other business shared our values, right? We were going to do the right thing for the customer and we were going to make sure our partners were taken care of too. So we had built the integration. It was creating more value for that partner because it was deepening their relationship with the customer. They had a problem with getting content into those platforms. One of the things Compendium did was made it very make it very easy for marketers to create content. We make it we made it easy for them to not only create it but then re-leverage it in places like that marketing automation platform. So we were making them stickier. So we reached out, started to co-sell with them. They got bought by Oracle, and then we they turned around and bought us. And I remember that. I remember two things. Um, one, pay attention to the ecosystem of companies that your customers are using because some of those could be potential partners. But then for those potential partners, pay attention to their value system because I didn't want to get burned again. Yeah. And so when I was doing the initial interviews for this business and for people that haven't heard the first podcast before we started the business, I did 40 hours of customer interviews, iterated into the product, pre-sold it to four companies, and then we raised the money and started the business. During that process, I would ask questions. Hey, what else are you using when I was interviewing these sales teams? And I kept hearing sales loft and then the other company in the space that we compete with that we'll tend to battle with. And there, there are a bunch of smaller companies, but it's kind of a two horse race for market leadership. And when I would ask questions uh, about those two products, because I wasn't familiar with them at the time, they would both, you know, the, the buyer or potential customer would always tell me, you know, why they used it, what it did for them. And that was important to understand because it would help me understand for the product that I was going to build, where do I fit into their day? But then I would also ask, Hey, why'd you choose you know, sales loft or the other company. And what emerged pretty quickly is if they chose, if they chose the other company, they just bought them first, right? They talked to them first, but when they would describe sales loft, they loved the product and they loved the people. And I'm like, great. Tell me about the people. And they started describing the culture and the values and the way that they would work with the customers. And when I heard that, I'm like, all right, these are my people. I'm going to, I'm going to bet on this company from the, the jump. We've used, Sales often in one of our companies in the past and had a phenomenal experience with the product. And I, now I'm kind of sad because I, I don't know, I wasn't close enough to the usage to, to know how often they reached out or what, you know, what the, what the customer success relationship was. But, but I do, I do know we had a, a ton of success with it. We loved the product. Like we, we were instant fanboys in terms of the results that we, like it was a determinant shift in our output when we started using it. It's an amazing product. I mean, going back to one of the reasons we were comfortable, we used it ourselves, right? And, yeah. and you know, in an early stage company, it, it certainly as a founder, you have to do a little bit of everything. So I was, you know, I was doing sales, right? Yeah. I would do some prospecting. I would use their product in addition to my salespeople. I mean, my, to be very clear, our salespeople carried most of that water. I, I would help, but I use it. it. It's a magic product because early in my career, I, I had sold, right? I carried a bag. And so like going from, the experience I'd had in my early 20s to using something like sales loft was magic. <laughs> it's magic. Just magic. It's straight magic. It really is. I mean, it is yeah. like credit to that product team, the, the, the product team that was at sales loft before we arrived. It's led by a guy named Butler Reigns, who's phenomenal. That's a great product. Like we used it. So I, I had a high degree of confidence in it once we were using it. But going back to why did it, you know, we bet on them because this is, is important when I heard that about the culture and the people, I'm like, all right, I'm not making the same mistake twice. Culture matters. 
I'm going to I'm going to find a way to develop a relationship with this company early in the life of our company. And so once we we'd gotten our early early product in the market, and I mean it was er, like early, I started to look at the you know classic. Let's look at the LinkedIn profile of the founders. Do I know anyone that knows them? Turns out my friend Dan Hanrahan, who you know, who was the founder of Sixter here, is an awesome guy. Dan knew Kyle Porter, who's the CEO there. Sixter was a sales off customer. They were also an integration partner. And I asked Dan, I'm like, hey, can you introduce me to Kyle? There was a conference I was going to that Kyle was going to speak at. And I said, hey, can you introduce me? I'd love to meet him. So he connected us. I met Kyle at the show. He still remembers that. And that's that's kind of what started that relationship. And that was before they ever used us. And, you know, so we bet on them from the jump, you know, it was, I think the third piece of software that we bought, we had to buy Salesforce because we were building something to integrate with it. Yeah. Prior to that, I had to have a way for our investors to execute the contracts to, to do the investment. So I yeah. bought PackSafe to do that. And then we bought SalesLoft. So we had been on it from the jump. So I knew that product really well. So we knew from the beginning, it's, and, and if you're starting a company, you need to understand what are the ecosystem, what's the ecosystem of solutions that my potential customer is using in that. And that's true whether you're doing a software company or you're not. Yeah, um, totally. Because you need to know where you fit in their life. So that, that was the first part. So let's wheel and deal to the second part, which is, okay, so how did this acquisition? How did this happen? Yeah. yeah. So as I mentioned, we've been customers for a little over 19, I'm sorry, they've been our customer for a little over 19 months. Um, we had served them exceptionally well, just as they had done with us. Were they your biggest customer? By the time of the acquisition, they were not. For a while, they were though. Okay. For a while, they were. Yeah. I mean, because that would have been like six months in, eight yeah. months in, something like that when yeah. you landed them as customers. Yeah, sure. Yeah. At, that, at that point, they were. Okay. Yeah. At that point, they were without question. How did you land that deal? We worked really hard. We worked really hard to build trust. It, it was probably the only bottoms up sale I think we did. What do you mean when you say bottoms up? So most of our sales, we would come in through sales leadership or some other exec in the company and that would start the process. And then they would eventually maybe bring in some of the frontline sellers. At SalesLoft, we met them through, you know, Dan had started that relationship. We got other people to connect us with them, started to build relationships. And then to this, like, to this day, I'm very thankful to these gentlemen. And was that, was that intentional or accidental? Uh, it was a little of both. So very intentional in some ways. And then we got very lucky and then we were introduced to Taylor Thompson, who is still one of the best sellers at SalesLoft. He's a frontline seller and a guy named Stephen Gladney. And Stephen at the time was also one of their top reps. He actually made the journey from seller to product management as a software developer at SalesLoft, which is a pretty amazing journey. Really? He is. Wow. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to talk with him. You absolutely should. It's, <laughs> an, it's an amazing story. That's awesome. So they, they took a look at what we were doing and there was an opportunity to come in because there was a company that started a little ahead of us candidly just didn't run their business very well. They did the classic, if we build it, everyone will come kind of startup fallacy mistake, burned a ton of money that way and, and failed. And SalesLoft had been using an aspect of that product. They needed a replacement. These guys have become aware of us, Taylor and Gladney. They evaluated us and this company that we ended up competing with. Uh, they brought us to their managers. The managers liked us. Then they brought us to Derek Grant, who is our VP of commercial sales here at SalesLoft, and we got bought. And then, you know, we did what we do, which is we serve the customer extremely well. 
we continued to build product with the customer. We were super responsive and just developed a lot of street cred over there as a result. And so as a result, we were serving really well, started to partner with them. They realized there was an opportunity to co-sell because there was an aspect of the sales cycle or the workflow that we covered that they, they yeah. kind of didn't. And, and it looked pretty obvious that we were going to help them win some deals. And I had gotten to know Kyle because I'd reached out to him from the beginning and we had gone to their conference a couple of times. We had sponsored. He reached out to us in late August and I was actually in the middle of closing our next round of funding. And Kyle's a pretty straightforward guy. Would this have been your second round of funding? Third. Third round. So it would have been our third. Okay. So, uh, and I was probably 30 days from being done with that. So, I mean, I was already, as you know, like working two jobs, right? Running the business yeah. and fundraising. Yeah. Kyle called and, and he just said, hey, you know, I'd like to know uh, if you would be open to potentially being part of Sales Loft. And I said, hey, I was up front. I'm like, hey, I'm in the middle of closing this round, but I have tremendous respect for you. And you're a co-founder in the business. I'm open to that conversation. I'm not trying to leverage you, but I'm 30 days from closing this. So if we're going to do this, we need to talk about it now. What led him, to, and, and you may not know this, that's fine. What, what led him to make that call? So there, there were, uh, I think, a few reasons. When they look at the future of Sales Loft, they realize there's an opportunity to, to drive more value to sellers, particularly around opportunity management. Sorry. I Go ahead. Not about the why, like why was this a strategic deal, but that timing. Like that, what's interesting to me is uh, is that timing. Was that like a, a a tip from a friend of a friend of like, hey, they're they're just about to close around. Maybe the timing would be good, or or was it purely accidental? Like, no, no, this makes a total. This makes a ton of sense. We've known these guys forever. I should just call, and it was just lucky coincidence. Yeah, they're, they're, that's a good question. They're strategic, so they've done an offsite not long ahead of that. Maybe oh, I think late July. And realize that, hey, we think to get to our long-term revenue goals, they want to be a public company and they're, they're on track to do it. We need to do opportunity management. We need to drive more value for account execs because we think there are, there are a lot of traditional sellers. So really, if you step outside of tech, other industries are starting to adopt the SDR to AE model. A lot of them haven't yet. So there are a lot of traditional sellers that a core part of their workflow, in addition to prospecting, where, where sales loft is absolutely world-class, is managing the opportunity. Yep. And so they had done a strategic offsite and said, hey, we want to get into this business. And then they evaluated. That they said, hey, let's estimate. If we we're going to build something like a Costello, what do we think that that would cost and how long would that take? And where would that get us against our long-run strategic plan? Or if we were to buy, who are the candidates? And obviously, they knew us really well. And our cultures matched because we got to know each other. And, and you know, they, I think, realized the same thing that we did when we bet on them, which is we have a similar value system. Uh, and so they they reached out to us. And so that that's where it started. Now, we had a lot of champions internally. They're ahead of, there's a guy named Sean Kester there. I mean, the fact that, like... The, the amazing thing is I could have said before they did the deal. Yeah, I was going to ask that, actually. That's pretty impressive. And, that, and that's an important thing to say, right? Whether you you should never build your business to be acquired, you should just build a great business because then you will always have a business. But you need to know that if you build a great business, that's the kind of business people want to acquire, right? Yeah. So when we were building our business, they were clearly a core strategic partner. We knew they were going to be a strategic partner before we, we started the business. So we made it our business to get to know the people over there. And one of the people that was a champion for us from the beginning was a guy named Sean Kester. So Sean 
ran platform strategy for them and still, or for us and still does, uh, and was a champion for us from early on and, you know, advocated for us. They have a VP of sales strategy that was brought in, I want to say earlier this year. His name is Jeremy Donovan. He's in the New York office. When he saw what we did, what we do, he had looked at, I think, eight or nine companies because they were thinking about adding a forecasting tool, wasn't aware that the the AE team was using us and realized they didn't need to buy a forecasting tool. And he just point blank said, why haven't we bought you? And and then he said, I'm going to get off this call and I'm going to call Kyle and I'm going to ask him. Nice. So we, we had a lot of champions, one of their investors at Emergence Capital a guy named Doug Landis uh, loved us. Uh, I know Doug had championed us there as well. A number of the sellers we were found they out. In a, were they an investor in Costello as well? No, only in okay. Salesloft. Okay. And Doug is kind of the growth partner in Emergence and makes it his business to know modern growth strategies to provide value to their portfolio companies and also to know kind of every technology in that space. And so I had wanted to see what we were doing. We had a mutual friend, which is a guy named John Barrows, who was a marketing partner of ours. John is probably the best trainer for sales for like high growth tech companies in the country. He's also an advisor at Salesloft. So there was just a lot of interconnectivity Doug, there. Doug is a second intro I'm going to have to ask you for. for sure. that, that feels like that could be an amazing conversation too. Oh, he would be perfect for this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com. Okay, so thank you. That was that was awesome on timing. So I do a quick what if analysis for me. If you'd closed round three of funding and he called you, would this deal have happened? Or do you think you just would have been like, I, look, I just set all these expectations. I like certainly we'll look at it, but I, you know, like we we would look at it, I think for the reasons that I, I discussed earlier, it would have been a lot harder to do. I think it would have been a lot harder to do until we probably hit the next revenue milestone. So it was, it was the timing was perfect. The timing was perfect. When you took it to your existing investors, was it immediate excitement? Was it no convince us that this is the right thing to do? What, what would, what did that feel like? Yeah. So you, you have to tell them early, right? You have to tell your board early. I think the key is one, always be transparent for the life of the company even if you weren't on our board, if you were one of our investors, you get a note from me every month talking about what we were doing. And it was pretty lengthy compared to apparently most of the notes that they got. Uh, and it was generally pretty transparent. I was talking about what we were working on, where we were struggling. Uh, I would run through, you know, every month, team, go to market, product, and then any other kind of issue that popped up. So if you do that consistently, I think you build a lot of credibility with your investors, whether things are going well or not so well. But then obviously, if you're on my board, I'm talking to you much more frequently. So the thing that matters to them is like once we get a feel for like what terms are, then then we'll, we'll have an opinion on this. But generally, we trust your judgment. And if you think that this is worth exploring, explore it. And when we get to the point where we need to make some decisions, then let's let's talk about that. <laughs> so Kyle calls you. You say, 
yes, let's explore it. What happens next? Walk me through the process and uh, as much as you can or are, are able uh, to in terms of how does a transaction like this unfold? And and so I know you've been through this with Compendium and and you know some other past experiences. You you've seen the show before, but for a first time founder, there's not a lot of places where they can get uh, the inside scoop on on how this works. So what was the process like from there? For the the things that I can go through, I, I would say let's let's start here. Uh, a book I read that was extremely helpful and. Uh, had tip to Dan- Danielle Morals. She's from Mattermark. And I think in a, of all places, like I think a tweet response, someone had asked her about her acquisition and they said, hey, what was helpful? She said one of her investors had advised her to read a book called The Magic Box Paradigm. For some reason, I remember that. And when we were getting into this process. So you bought the book when Kyle called you? Uh, not long after. And I read it. I read it very quickly. <laughs> and, and it's it's not very long, so you can do that. Like if you're disciplined, you can do that. And it's it's a wonderful book. I mean, it goes through the acquisition process that you'll typically see. I mean, they're all going to be a little bit different, but from the vantage point of the acquirer and the acquired company, and that's helpful because then you can you have more empathy for the person that is going to potentially acquire you and why they're asking for some things. Some of that, if you've raised money from investors before, will be very similar, right? You're going to need a data room. They're going to perform due diligence. And then there are going to be some other aspects that will be a little bit different because we're talking about acquiring the business, not just investing. But one of the takeaways that I appreciated from it was in the scenario where you're going to do this, the offer will never get better than when they make they give you an LOI. And so to before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of the parts that I can get into, typically the way this stuff will go is someone will call you, you'll kind of discuss it back and forth. And then if you get to the point where they're serious, they'll issue what's called a letter of intent and you'll sign that. And the terms can vary a little bit, but what it really means is that we are int- essentially intending to acquire your business, assuming that certain conditions are met. And in that letter of intent, much like you'll get a term sheet for around uh, venture capital that will lay out the terms, assuming due diligence checks out. The LOI just means, hey, assuming due diligence checks out, we are, are intending to acquire this business for this this price, right? And yeah. uh, you know, we'll discuss whether it's equity or cash or some mixture thereof. So one of the points in the book that made a lot of sense to me was, hey, if the other party is having to do this in the dark. In other words, they don't know if you have any risks or red flags. In other words, there's unknowns for them. They're going to have to do a, a bunch of things to protect themselves. And one of those things is to give you a lower number than they would know, than they would actually give you if they knew that you didn't have any problems or they knew what the risks or red flags were. And then they're going to also build a bunch of terms into that letter of intent. That they, that they have to put in there to protect themselves because they don't know essentially what's on the other side once they open up the box, right? To see what is really going on in this business. And so the point was, hey, be as transparent as you can be. And so I probably took that to a slightly extreme place. I wouldn't do this with everyone, right? Like there are going to be some people that are going to hear what I'm going to say next and they're going to cringe because it's going to make them uncomfortable. But uh, I would also tell you having talked to them now that the deal is done, they loved that I did this and it was also disarming. Before we signed the LOI, I gave Kyle, I gave Rob, who is the co-founder and the president there and drove a lot of the transaction along with Kyle. 
And I gave Sean Kester and anyone else they asked for access to our data room. And that's the same data room that my investors who were evaluating us for that next round had. And the point in doing that was, hey, we're going to leave it all out there. And if we're going to do this deal, let's do it like let's do it out in the open. Because if we're going to be one entity after this, we have to have a relationship that's based on trust. So I'm going to I'm going to take the first step and I'm going to be vulnerable first. Because as we know in life, usually to get someone else to be vulnerable, you have to be vulnerable first to make it safe. So I'm going to go first. And that probably accelerated our process because they got to see. And then when we got to the LOI, there still had to be some diligence, right? The lawyers had to look at some things, but the reality is any of the major things that they would have been worried about, they had already satisfied that those weren't going to be problems for us because everything that was there to see was there. And the, the other pro tip for any entrepreneur, always keep your data room up to date. Keep it up to date. If you're not sure how to put one together, if Mike reminds me, I will, I'll send him, he's probably got it, like a Google sheet that's got it, like a good data room outline. Yeah. It's, it's essentially in line with what the National Venture Capital Association would tell kind of new venture capitalists to use. You'll get some requests that are like outside of that typically from some VCs, but it's going to have, let's say, if we're living life by the Pareto principle, it's, you know, got the 80% of what you need in that last 20%. So it's kind of not really Pareto principle. It'll be the, you know, one-off requests that a given firm will want, but it'll get you most of the way home. So organize your stuff according to that list from the jump, keep it up to date. So, and what I mean by that is like, if we would sign a new customer, we didn't have that contract living in one folder that we would have like use for operating and then we would have this other folder for data rooms when we were going to raise money. And then we'd have to remember to copy stuff over. It always lived in the same folder and that folder was in the data room. So we didn't have to spend hours and hours and hours later on, like running down docs. Did your whole team have access to the data room? No. And that's not like, that's the nice thing about Google Drive. You can give people access to the things that they need. Yeah, yeah. So if you dealt with contracts for us, like sales contracts. Then you'd have access to that folder exactly in right. the data room. Yeah. Right on. Nice. So you can do it that way, but it's, it's a way to keep it up to date. And then when you go into raising funds or, you know, an acquisition like this, you're up to date, data rooms clean. And it also leaves a good impression with the person on the other end, right? Like if they come in and the data room is pretty comprehensive, it generates more confidence that you have your act together. And there's probably not something out there that I need to worry yeah. about. If you've ever been through an audit, Many of the same things would exist in a data room, contracts, financials, key disclosures, all it's a lot of the same stuff. I think the data rooms probably got a little bit more, but it, it would not be dissimilar from an audit. So you read the magic box paradigm. What surprised you when you went through the process? It, it tracked pretty closely. I mean, it really did. We We were open early. I think that helped a lot because we were open early. They were open. So we built a relationship based on trust. It also, it also helped, obviously, that our value systems were the same. So that made a big difference, I'm sure. Like it was, the interactions were pretty smooth. We could be vulnerable with each other. We could explain why we were asking for things. And that's really important, I think, because we'd set a precedent from the beginning that we're going to be, we're going to build this thing based on trust and we're going to be open. And I was negotiating with founders, right? So they, they had, they were me oh, and they that's had, nice. they had been me. That's right? a nice insight. 
that probably doesn't happen often. It doesn't, right? Yeah, so. if you're getting acquired by IBM, you're not talking to a founder. No. Almost by definition. Yeah. yeah. And so like when I would talk to Rob or Kyle, they are me, right? They are me. They understand how important this decision is for me. They have labored to build their business. They know that this isn't a light decision that you're taking. They know that you have probably made like personal sacrifices to get to this point. And you can just be very open. You can say, hey, I'm asking, here's the reason this, this particular item is important to us. It's because, you know, we really care about the relationship with the customers or, you know, I've had peanut butter for dinner for the last two years because right? <laughs> I have to take care of my kid. If more. you have dinner. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, and they can appreciate that because they've done it. So it's, that is helpful. It's just a much more straightforward and honest uh, interaction. I think, again, it helps that one value systems are the same. They are honest people. They're high integrity people. And we went first, right? We took the risk first and we, we just opened up, you know, the kimono and we showed them, you know, what was, what was behind the curtain. So you're pretty reflective, and you may not have had, uh, and I just know that from past experience, and you may not have had enough time to, to digest everything that's happening. Two months is not not a lot of time, particularly when you've made a lot of commitments probably leading up to a transaction that you are now running to fulfill. Yeah. But I would be super interested, and you can reserve the right to defer this to round three, but I'd be super interested. What are some of the things you think you're going to take away from this experience long term? Whether And not even just, uh, the, I'll genericize that a little bit more, not even necessarily related to doing a deal. But in this process, what are some things that you think will live on in your time at SalesLoft and whatever you do next? Uh, what, what are some of the key takeaways? So I think that the things that I would say matter, if I build another business, which I think long-term I will, right? I want to be at Sellsloft for a while. I have a ton of respect for them. And we can get into what I think that I'm going to learn there and what I would say I'm already learning there. So for instance, the PMO office is a good example of that. Just having greater appreciation for the intentionality around communication because we have we have just so many more people. Like yeah. I, I would say what I have been good at up to this point is building products and businesses that people love. And that is fundamentally, arguably the most important thing. But as you're scaling, there are a lot of other things that you have to be able to do, right? When you have, you know, there are 450 plus people at sales off. So that adds some complexity to the business. It also brings around some really fun challenges to solve. And it's fun to have really great teammates everywhere you look that are high caliber, you know, people, but uh, it brings in some interesting things into the business that I haven't had to, to manage before. So I'm excited about that. But like, as far as the acquisition process, if you're dealing with someone that is honest, like the people I was dealing with and, and I'm partnered with today, be open early, right? And you're, you're going to learn a lot about them really quickly. If I had been really open like that and they didn't come back and reciprocate, that's a pretty good sign as to what that relationship's going to be like after that. What did reciprocation look like? Like, how did you know that they were open to? What did they do to signal that to you? They were honest, right? I mean, I can't get into like specifics of the conversations, but if I was talking to Rob and I talked to Rob a lot and I now report to Rob and, and that's, you know, one of the reasons I'm so comfortable reporting to Rob. I mean, I haven't had a boss in probably four or five years, really. 
So, uh, and it's gone well. And, and I think part of that is I got to know him through this process. He would be honest. He would talk to me about what's going on in his personal life, how he is thinking through the decision. Like what's my process for thinking through this decision? A lot of transparency. A lot of transparency. Right and, he, and he, he had been in, in a situation where he had raised money in another business before. And I think they sold it. And, you know, so he understood where I was coming from and he was willing to share and, and listen, you know, the person on the other end doesn't have to be another founder, but are they, are they honest, right? Are they going to explain, Hey, I'm asking for this thing that may not make sense to you. And here's why I'm asking. Yeah. For. Is there empathy? Yeah. The stuff that I would tell you is helpful is if you've ever spent any time in sales, going through an acquisition process is helpful. It's helpful for an acquisition process because you realize when someone is like, okay, they're acting like a champion. They now want to get this deal done. And they're telling you, here's what I need from you to help me help the rest of my team see what I am seeing. Yeah. Right? And if you've been in sales, you recognize when that conversation is happening. Yeah. So we built a good relationship with the people that were ultimately going to champion us. And it became apparent that they, they were now bought in and they were going to take it to the team. They had been a customer of yours for 19 months, 16 months, 19 months. What was it again? A little over 19 months. A little over 19 months. How much championing needed to happen? I I feel like that's like a really weird, everybody knows your product. You're, they've been using you forever, right? Like what, how does that, I gotta, I gotta imagine that's like an unfair (laughs) advantage. There's, yeah, there's no question. It's an unfair advantage. Like there is no question, but I mean, let's put our, let's put ourselves in their shoes now, right? Like. You're, you're growing, you have a board, you know, even if, Hey, we use this product. We love this product. I mean, going back to, okay. I mean, they, they didn't have access to my financial statements. They didn't know yeah, I mean, no. until, until we share. Why it. can't you, you guys are a product company. Why can't you just build this? Why would we buy this little company in Indiana? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah right. I'm tracking. I mean, you, you have to put yourself in their shoes yep. and then, and they still have to do diligence because what if, what if our sales contracts were stupid, right? What if we had written terms in there that we're going to put them at risk? So you, you still have to do all of that Got stuff, it. right? You, even though we'd serve them really well and they love the product, you still have to be intentional. And it's the second acquisition they've done. Yep. And Lots of risk. One. Yep. Yeah, a lot of risk. A lot of risk. The business had decided the area where we were in was strategically important. And the first acquisition was good, right? It so was. The only thing they can do is screw up by, exactly. by acquiring you. Exactly. So, yeah, that, that's exactly right. The first acquisition worked, but you're exactly right. Like, it's the first one or the second one. So, yep. you know, it's, it's, it's not Oracle where they're going to buy three or four companies a month. And if two or three of them don't work out, no one's going to notice unless it's a massive one. You know, for sales loft, we matter, right? And that's, and by the way, as an entrepreneur, that's where you want to be, right? Like, you are doing the thing you're doing today because you want to do work that matters. And if you choose to be acquired, you want to go to a place where what you're doing still matters, because if it doesn't, you're going to lose the thing that you loved about what you were doing all day, every day. Back to lessons learned. That's yeah. So from an acquisition standpoint, those are easily the biggest ones. Build the relationship early. I am certain that have we not, and you don't have to be as extreme as we were. In other words, like knowing before you're starting the company that you are going to build relationships. But if you do know that you want that option, and I would treat it as an option, because again, do not build a business to be acquired. Do not do that. You need to build a business that is going to be a phenomenal business that you can continue to build no matter what. 
because you may not want to ever sell or the business that may reach out to you that want to acquire you may not be a business that you want to sell to. So you need to have a great business that can sustain itself. But having said that, if you know that that's an option that may make sense for you at some point down the road, build the relationships early because then you'll know ahead of time some of the things that are the most important to you, which is if you've gone through the checklist just like we did, is this good for my employees? Yes. They're going to have more opportunities and we trust the people that they're going to work with to be good to them and to create those opportunities. Is it going to be good to my customers? Yes. Because we know the people on the other side and they're good to their customers. Is it going to be good for my my investors? Yes. Because we believe in the direction of that business and we believe that the people that we would be joining will continue to execute in a way that would be good for our investors. And then, okay, how are we going to feel about it? Well, you know what? We know these people. We like them. We have the same values. Our missions are aligned. We're probably going to be pretty comfortable here. And I can tell you what, you know, there's always going to be a little weirdness when it happens because you go from running the business to now you're going to, you have to to learn how to be part of a big team. But this has gone as smoothly as it could possibly go at this point. Can I, was there, were there any investors who did not uh, on your side who did not want to do this deal? There were a couple that had questions, but when we get, so, so going back to process, so things I would recommend and this, uh, so we are fortunate that as an advisor or uh, an observer on our board, we had Don Aquilano. You probably know Don. Don is a very well thought of um, venture capitalist in the West. A lot of successful exits behind his belt. He's done venture capital for quite a long time. Don gave us some good advice when it came down to kind of mechanics for our investors, like, hey, when when do we let them know? Because you, you need to let the board know pretty much immediately if you're going to consider this. If you're just going to say no, at so if I if Kyle had called and for some reason I'm like, hey, this this is not the right time, then yeah, you don't need to go to your board. But if you're at least willing to consider it, then you need to talk to your board immediately and at least let them know and get their their advice, their input, and their consent. So the board knew, as I mentioned early, the rest of the investors, you want to wait until there's enough to talk about there. Like what I would not do is if I'd received that call, I wouldn't turn around and email them because there's really not anything there yet. We'd not reached a letter of intent. At that point, sales loft was exploring it. They might've decided, you know, after a couple of conversations, hey, we like these guys, but it feels off. We're not going to do this. Right. And then you've burned some capital with your investors that you don't want to burn. So when we got to the point where, okay, it looked like this deal was going to happen. Don was really helpful. And then Greg Buffet, who was our board member from our lead investor at Dundee Venture Capital and bet on us from the jump. Can I pick at that for a second? Go ahead. Because I'm stuck. You send a, you send a monthly note to all of your investors, a monthly email. I did. So for some period of time, conceivably, you knew you were talking to Sales Loft and did not include that in that monthly note? Yeah, I didn't include it in August. So Cobb called me before the end of August. And we it, it was pretty close to the end of August. So let's say uh, if I were to go back to the calendar, it's probably like two or three days before the end of the month. So they, were, they would get a note from me about the prior month, the first week of the next month, right? So if, mm-hmm. you know, August 31st, is a Wednesday, they're getting the note from me, you know, by that Friday, if it's like September 2nd or, okay. or early the next That week. makes total sense. You would definitely not include it in that email. Yeah. No question. Now, by the end of September, so the note you were going to get for that month, 
then at that point, I'm like, okay. It's either real or not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's looking pretty real. At that point, I think we still didn't have the letter of intent by the time I sent it, but it was probably going to happen. So I included in the note, hey, we've had a company reach out. And you know you need to keep confidentiality for the partner as well. Uh, in this case, sales law. We've had a potential acquirer reach out. We're going to explore that diligently as you would expect. We're going to continue to operate the business as normal. We will not be distracted. And we are continuing to work on our fundraising path because your investors need to know. And has, this has to be true, by the way, and it was for us, that you will not be distracted. You can't let this derail the business because it may not come to fruition. So at that point, we at least let them know that, hey, something was, was potentially in the works. And then in October, you know, we had hit the letter of intent. We were a few weeks into it and now look like, okay, we've, we've gotten pretty far into diligence. Their attorneys are now, it looks like, satisfied in the way that we were satisfied and SalesLoft already knew that there were no issues here. All right, now it's time to let them know. And then Greg and Dom were super helpful on how to like explain how to position that note to them. And then Dom made a really great suggestion. He's like, hey, you should set up a call, send, yeah. a, send a memo ahead of time. The memo should outline high level kind of the terms for the deal. And then we brought Tim Capen, who is our, our lead counsel for my smeller, to that call to answer any questions for them. So we set up a one-hour call, not, not too far ahead of the deal closing to answer any questions for them. The other thing that I would advise that you do is once you are confident that the deal looks like it's going to go and you know what the, the proceeds or the distribution will be for your investors, you want to put together for each one of them what that's going to be for them. And you want to send that out before you send the docs to sign because they, they one, deserve to know. They need to, they need to feel good about what they're signing and need to know what it means for them. And then they need to obviously have that document. Who puts that together for you? So uh, I'm fortunate. Rod Foyer is my co-founder. I mean, I looked at it with him. So Rod's prior career, he'd done PE. He'd done some other things. Oh, jeez. So Rod, <laughs> you know, could I have done it? Yes. Rod is a magician with that stuff and was very easy. All right. So you didn't have to hire somebody to do the waterfall analysis and Did make not. it all. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now we, we got the blessing on, on Rod's work from our attorneys. And you should do that just to make sure that you've You've crossed all the T's and dotted the I's, but Rod knows what he's doing. It was excellent. Once that was together, then line by line for each investor, you send out exactly what it means to them. Uh, in our case, it was a mixture of equity plus cash. Now, I am more like most founders. I'm more equity incented. Uh, so that mattered to me. Uh, we had some investors that were also more equity oriented. So we would send out to them, hey, the distribution is going to be this much in equity, this much in cash. Did they get to, and again, you don't have to answer it. Did they get to pick and choose? Like if I wanted a little more equity, did I get it? And then somebody else who wanted a little more cash could take my cash? You can't. And the reason you can is it, you would put yourself into a Rubik's Cube kind of situation that you don't want to be solving when you're X number of days before closing the deal. And there really isn't a great process to resolve conflicts. Okay. So let's say hypothetically of my investors, let's pretend I had 15. But you can't push that down to the investors either. Like, look, if the two of you want to figure out a deal, that's fine, but I'm not going to run that process for you. Yeah, you could, but think about it this way. Like you have to get a bunch of signatures in a short period of time. Do you, do you really want? No, you don't. Never mind. I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) You don't. You've convinced me that could take months. Yeah. Good, yeah, you, good point. you don't. And it just it just puts you in a better boat because then what if somebody afterwards comes back and says, you know, 
looking back on it, I, I wanted my mix to be this and said, now I'm upset with you. Instead, hey, it's a formula. Everyone is, everyone's proceeds. Everybody gets a deal. Yeah. yeah. Did any of your investors push you to get an, uh, another offer? Like, cause you didn't run a process. You didn't hire an investment banker. You didn't get five firms to make a bid for you. You didn't, at least I don't think you did. And you would have, I think, feel like you would have said that. So did any of your investors push for that? Yeah, one or two. But the reality is we would not have, I mean, again, like at some point, if, if it's a good deal, it's okay for you as an entrepreneur because, you know, we're, I mean, we're still in the business and as part of this deal, we have, we're going to be in this business, right? We're taking equity in this business. They wanted equity in whoever acquired us, assuming it was the company that acquired us. You want us to be invested in growing that business because that's good for everybody involved, right? And it's certainly good for sales lot who we have joined. You want our interest to all be aligned. So what you don't want is us to run a process and then have to sign off on a deal that we don't want to be a part of. It's not going to go well, right? It's just not going to go well. Like, listen, yeah, don't run a process if you're not going to choose the other company anyway. Yeah, right. right? Yeah, I mean, it's a point. I mean, because if you think about it, it is not going to be a great deal for the acquirer. And if they're not going to pay a ton of money in cash and let you walk away, that doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. And at the stage that we are at for the businesses that would make the most sense for us, you'd want equity in those businesses. They are the, the most likely acquirers for us were great businesses. Yeah. Like they're great businesses and they're high growth businesses that are probably going to IPO. Like, so they would want us to be just as aligned I, with them. I would like a backdoor into equity and sales loft. Yeah. I'd take that all day long. Are you freaking kidding me? Exactly. Yes. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.